You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Is there a thread that connects us to our own sense of well-being? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, my first guest is, and I love her, we haven't touched base in a while, it's S.J. Roseanne. I'm going to discuss her new book, The Art of Violence. After that, commentary from the Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart with Just a Thought. I also welcome her back to the program. And then later on, I'm going to talk about health. You are what your grandparents ate. So you can blame them if things aren't going well. Finally, finish off with a song from singer-songwriter Pete Mancini. But before we start, I want to talk to you directly. I'm going to give you some names and see if they resonate. Kristen Bell, who starred in a great TV series called The Good Place. Bill Hader, you remember him from Saturday Night Live? And also he has a cable show where he plays a hitman who wants to become an actor. Robin Williams, one of my favorite comedians of all time. And Joe Buck, the sportscaster. Now, why do I mention those names? I've been doing these kind of programs for quite a long time. Radio, television, public venues, large and small. And every time I do one of these programs, I feel like it's the first time. And when it's the first time, there's always a sense of doubt. Do I know what I'm doing? And the names I mentioned at the top, as talented as they are, they always had some self-doubts about who they are and what they do. And I think that's universal for all of us. Are we good at what we do? If we need to improve, and if we do, how do we get there? No matter how long you're doing it or for the first time. Joining us right now is the author of The Art of Violence, S.J. Roseanne. S.J., good to see you again. Good to see you, Larry. You've twice you appeared at Writers on the Vine at Palmer Vineyards in Aquabog on East End of Long Island. We've yes. done over the years radio yes. and television interviews, but I want to catch up because I want to ask yes. you, are you still playing basketball? I am still playing basketball. Um, we have not played much in the pandemic. We did uh, in the summer and into the fall uh, practices where everybody had their own ball. Every You know, we did didn't do uh, any defense. Um, we stopped that in the winter, but we'll pick it up again in a couple of weeks. So yeah, I'm, I'm still playing. I'm 103. Um, right. And I have not gotten any taller, uh, but I'm still playing. Are you, are you playing point guard or are you shooting guard? Because I know you're not that tall. I know. <laughs> I'm the shooting guard. Uh, I, will, I will play point guard if uh, there's no one smarter than me on the floor. Um, you know, on my team, but there usually is a better point guard, but I, I will do it if I have to. Um, All right. But- what I've been doing lately with the, with the authors that I have on this program, I say there's two stories. One story is between the covers of the book, in this case, The Art of Violence. And the second story, which interests me also, is the story of the writer. So let's go back. You grew up in the Bronx. What was that like? Um, I had uh, a, a, what I would call an enjoyable and exciting childhood. 
Um, we lived on the only flat street in a hilly neighborhood. So, and, and also the only smooth paved asphalt street. So all the kids would come and play on our block. Um, and we lived in the center house. So there were kids everywhere. We had a big backyard. Uh, actually, it was a side yard, so that was even better because uh, you could you could see what was going on in the street while you were playing in the yard. I went to PS 81 and, um, you know, it was one of those old brick buildings um, that the uh, Board of Ed used to build. Great big windows. This was before uh, air conditioning. And... Uh, and it was it was kind of great. I did not love my teenage years, but who does? Right. Um, and uh, and and so I would I would say the Bronx was uh, was a good place to be. Yeah. You know what I did? I like to find the earliest book that I can find in my local library. The authors wrote, and I came across. Bear with me for a minute. Mandarin plaid which I mm -hmm. think is the third book in the series of Lydia Chin and Bill Smith. And what interests me there correct. in that book, it's, it's formatted a lot differently. It was a different publisher at that time. But I think I'm looking for connect the dots and threads within all of your books. And also um, Ghost Hero too, and your new Ghost one, Hero, yeah. The Art of Violence. Yeah. Are you kind of interested or addressing what I call the artistic temperament? In a lot of ways, I am not not in all my books, but certainly in um, Ghost Hero, and in The Art of Violence, in Mandarin Plaid to some extent. Although that was about fashion, so it's a different, uh, it's a commercial application of the uh, artistic temperament. Um, but yeah, yeah, I uh, I I did it also in um, uh, No Colder Place, right. which was set on a construction site. And uh, and it, a lot of it had to do not with the design, not with the architecture, but with the uh, feelings the construction workers had, the pride they took in their job. So it, it interests me. It does the artistic temperament and 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 what it what it takes to produce a work of art. Now there are a lot of famous duo duos in crime fiction and beyond. I'm going to mention a few, and then we'll let you jump in. Uh, obviously, Dave Robichaux and Cleet Purcell, James Lee Burke, um, Spencer and Hawke in the Parker books, um, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. And then if you go back to the early days of television with Dragnet, Sergeant Joe Friday and Officer Bill Gannon. And then I don't want to get too silly, but you got Batman and Robin. But this other one really interests me because I think kind of plays in a little bit to stretch into your latest book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So your duo was a little different, Lydia Chin, you're smiling, thank you, and, and Bill Smith, because that, how are they different? I, I know what I think about that, but it, they're different from the other duos because they kind of switch roles depending on the book. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was really interesting. Um, I don't know that uh, Bill and Lydia would, would uh, appreciate that, but um, they think it was funny. Yeah, uh, they do switch roles. One of them will uh, take the lead in the case and be the narrator in the book, which is done in first person, and the other will be the sidekick. And this alternates from book to book. There is one place in the series where uh, two Lydia books follow each other, but generally they alternate 
and uh, The Art of Violence is a Bill Smith book with Lydia Chin as the sidekick, the partner. And this enables me to let the reader see them through each other's eyes. Right. Uh, you know, you know what each of the narrators thinks of him or herself. And then in the next book, you see that from the point of view of another, which is often different and very interesting. So I guess I might be the Jekyll and Hyde in question. Why not? Why um, not? You two people are drawn to create your stories and your narrative. I also picked right. up a book called uh, Paper's Son. And I'm going to mention yes. it in two different ways. I'm just starting to read it. It's a fascinating title. We think of Paper Moon. So what is the significance and the origins of the title Paper Sun? I just learned that. I think that's really interesting. Paper Sun, and this is S-O-N, for those of you who don't have the book in front of you. I don't know why you don't, but if you don't. Um, a Paper Sun is, it's a Chinese term, and it refers to young men who came to America during the time of the Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbade Chinese immigration, except in two cases. One is in the case of the merchant and educated classes. Right. And the other was in the case of a relative already living in the United States who was a citizen. And so what would happen is that Chinese men who had been naturalized before the Chinese Exclusion Act and were now citizens would go back to China and come back and claim to have fathered children. And, and they would do this a couple of times. And then a child would come over and claim to be one of their sons. And in in fact, in many cases, that was a paper son. It was a son who had paid money, whose parents had paid money for the use of the citizen's name and history so that the paper son who came into the country, usually through uh, Angel Island, would be interrogated. Uh, where did you grow up? What was the village like? Where was the mill? Where was the goose pond? And so on. And all those answers were the answers that the father had given and had sent home on paper uh, to the village. To And a lot of these people couldn't read. You would have a, a, a letter writer in San Francisco write the letter, and it would be read to so um, eventually these, these young boys or, or young men would come to the U.S. and be, their, their names might have been Chan, and now their name was Mao. And they were, you know, this, the family has descended now as Maos, but they are paper sons. They were sons only on paper in order to get past the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that was, um, it, it's very common among Chinese Americans to have paper sons in, in the family uh, history, in the family tree. 
my guest is SJ Roseanne, her new book calls the art of violence. I just want to circle back to something I said before, because I'm really interested. I'm talking about my own self-doubts about what I do and is it good enough and can you still grow no matter how long you're doing that. As a writer, do you have any self-doubts about what you do? Oh, all the time. Um, I, I remember one book I was writing where I was simultaneously thinking, this is the worst book anybody ever wrote. And the good news is I will never be able to finish it, so nobody's ever going to have to read it. Um, whether I should, I think all writers feel this, whether I should have been a writer in the first place, whose idea was this? I, I think, boy, I, I could have been doing something else for a living. Um, I could have been doing something else for fun. I could have been doing something else. Um, it happens all the time. And as you get better, you find yourself reaching higher, which means you never, you never have something, you, you, you're never without something yet to conquer. All right, and so you, you, you the question me, is, can you conquer that? You give me some hope. Maybe I can Go still ahead. get better better at what I'm doing. Thank you very much. You I'll take that to heart. You can always get better at what you're doing. Um, it doesn't mean it, it will ever come easy. I'll tell you something. What And I tell my students this all the time. I've written now 17 books and 70 short stories. And all I've ever learned, besides technical stuff, is that, but all I've learned about process is that it always feels like this right. and you can always right. get through it um, because I always have gotten through it, but it, you don't, you never feel, Oh, this is just gonna, this is, this is like butter. Never. All right. So I came across obituary of Phil Spector. Uh, he pretty much said uh, the tortured artist. Uh-huh. So you know where I'm going because one of your main characters, Sam Tabor, T-A-B-O-R, is a definition of a tortured artist. When you yeah. want to amplify on that? Yeah, I, I hope he wasn't uh, as, <clears throat> as bad a guy as Phil Spector was. But um, Well, there's some doubts, right? There's some doubts because we don't know exactly what he did or what he didn't do. So yes, there, yes or no, there's some possibilities okay. there. Yeah, Sam Tabor is... Um, Actually, uh, I, I guess we, we don't we don't anymore just say actually insane, but he is. He's um, he's got a number of diagnoses. Uh, he's never been quote normal. He's very intelligent. He's enormously talented. He has uh, studied art. He has Sam has no other interest besides making his paintings. He's very unhappy, but when he's working, he sinks completely into his work. He drinks uh, as a form of self-medication, and he has. I, I do. I you want me to to reveal the the opening bit in the plot here, Larry? Sure, um, sure. yeah, sure. short ball game. Run with it. Yeah, he has a uh, history of violence only in one event, but it was a uh, homicide, and it was a very. It was. There's no question that he did it, and he did it uh, in a very, very gory way, and that he that landed him in prison. And as the book starts, he's out because he has been discovered at, in in prison as a great artist, which he probably is, and an art world consortium has has 
arisen to get him out. So that's he is the center of the book. He is uh, Bill Smith's client from page one. There's two names that come to mind when you say about the consortium of people trying to get him out of prison. I think of Abbott and Norman Miller. Norman Miller was Abbott's champion, and we know what happened to Abbott. And so this, that this, is this that resonated is, with me when I read the book. Yeah, that is the seed of this book. Um, was the um, the the fight to get Jack Abbott out of prison, and then the total the he's left on his own once got out. He was left any counseling. He wasn't given any money. Right. He was he was just out, and it it was a total disaster for the man he killed and for himself. And I thought, boy, that 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 um, entitlement on the part of Mailer and his crew. Um, and then and then Abbott went back to prison, and and you know they went back to the bar. Um, right. And and I thought. I could do the same thing. I didn't want to use a writer. I wanted to use a visual artist. And I wanted to make visible the exploitative elements in the artistic community. The same thing might have happened uh, to a writer. If, if, if Abbott hadn't killed somebody, uh, he might have, have turned into what this community wants to turn Sam into, but um, the, yeah, it was absolutely that case which haunted me from from the time it happened. That this um, my guess once again is S.J. Roseanne, the author of The Art of Violence. There's another character that comes to mind who I like a lot in your book, and he's the photographer, photojournalist, um, Tony Oakhurst. Uh, he reminds me of Maplethorpe. Yeah. And Patty's, that was Patty Smith's best friend. Well, you know, and the reason why I met you're, you're a smart Patty guy Smith, there, Harry. Patty Smith said, till the day he died, he saw the world through the eyes of a child. And that fascinates me because I, I'm going to circle back to um, Sam Tabor because he sees the, the world differently than the rest of us. So that kind of ties it in for me, Maplethorpe, Tony Oakhurst who has a dark way he, the way he sees his photographs. It's an interesting element of the book. Yeah, Oakhurst is a very uh, a dark character. I thought he, he started off being based on Maplethorpe, but more and more he took, he, he took off in a different direction. Um, and, and, and yet, yeah, you're right. He is not the one who sees the world through the eyes of a child. That's Sam. Sam is just either completely fascinated by things he sees or he dismisses them because they're not interesting to him, which is, is what you get with a, uh, with a seven-year-old. And I, I, yeah, I, Oakhurst, I really uh, enjoyed creating. I enjoyed creating his, his photographs. I, I have to tell you, Larry, I really enjoyed creating all the art in that book. Uh, everything that was at the Whitney opening, it was great because I could I could invent all this art without having to actually paint it or sculpt it or, or photograph it. Um, and I, I, I love doing that. That was fun. Well, I'm going to mention another name. In 2003, a writer came to Writers on the Vine with John Johnson, wrote a book called The Only Son. 
His name was Jonathan St. Loper, who wrote in his first book as crime fiction writer. It was called The Death Artist. Now, lo and behold, there are two references to a St. Loper in your book. Now, I know the story, but share that for the people who are listening to this particular podcast, Artful Periscope, because now I can see you and you're smiling. I appreciate that. Yeah. John- Jonathan and I um, are very good friends. Um, and we became friends uh, at an event that you did, Larry, in some place on Long Island. Yeah, we came together. We had not met, but we came out on the train together. There were a couple of other writers, and we became buddies that night. And we have stayed friends ever since. We have taught together. Uh, we, we've worked together a couple of times. We did a, an anthology together called Dark End of the Street. And when I needed artists for the, for, well, I think the Sandlovers are in uh, Smith's apartment. Um, but when I needed artists for for to, to sprinkle through a book about an artist, uh, he was the one of the obvious choices. So I stuck that in there. Yeah. All right. So on on screen, you are petting your cat. I am. This is Bella the cat. Yeah. Hello, Bella. Hello, loves- Bella. I've had cats and dogs over the years, and it's an interesting observation that if you put a cat on your lap, and it starts to twitch it's telling you something, stop petting me, leave me alone, that's their body language. I'm gonna circle back to Sam, because I think this book is loaded with astute observations. When Sam starts to twitch and his brain starts misfiring, that's kind of a warning that something's happening to him. And this is also part of how you develop this unique character. So when he starts to lose it, what is happening and what can kind of bring him back? Well, what's happening is he is getting overloaded with things he doesn't want to think about, which is why he drinks, uh, things he doesn't want to think about or deal with or, or be part of. And what can bring him back is a straightforward calm. Uh, Bill Smith can do it. Uh, to He can do it up to a point. Um, The um, artist in the next door studio to his can do it because he just gives himself up to her. She's going to take care of him. And she also gives him beer. Right. Um, And, but what really he needs at that point is to be alone and to work. That's that's the um, only thing that will really keep him from from losing it, as he, as he says. Now, I'm going to refer to chapter three, and it's referenced called The Unsullied Light. Now, over the years, I don't know much about art, but I did an interview with the authors of a, for a book about de Kooning. And one thing I learned also about the east end of Long Island, where Writers on the Vine is held, that the light's different out there, and it helps painters because the way light comes through in the mornings, in the afternoon, and the evening. And what I learned that uh, art and paintings have something called the focal point. The focal point is what brings your eye directly to a certain point in the painting. But you reference something in the book, one of the characters, that is the shell of a painting. What is that? Well, in, in Sam's case in particular, uh, I, the, it's not a term used in art. 
But in Sam's case, since he's painting two paintings at once on the same canvas, and, and, and the way uh, people might think about this is to think about um, um, uh, Chuck Close, Chuck okay. Close, right? When you see a Chuck Close from across the room, you're seeing a portrait. And in Sam's case, that would be the shell painting. When you go up to the Chuck Close, you're seeing little squares with circles in them of different colors. And it's a totally different painting. It is not a portrait, it's not an image, it's a collection of little squares with circles in them, or little circles with squares in them. And in Sam's case, those little things are scenes of violence, like the dots in a newspaper. When you back Sam painting is a, a mundane, often beautifully done, but essentially trite image. And it is until you get up close to it that you see what it's made up of. I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge you with a craft question because we always used to talk about writers on the vine, the art and craft of storytelling. And this, this interests me and I wanna know, I wanna learn more about what you do and what other writers do. It's a balancing act between having too many characters, not enough characters, and the, just the right amount of characters. Do you wrestle with that in terms of making sure the narrative flows through the reader? Oh yeah, oh yeah, That's, the, the the narrative flow is something I always wrestle with. And the characters, I have been known to take characters out uh, or on the other hand, to realize that there somebody else needs to be in this scene. Um, usually the characters come into the book as they're needed uh, because I don't outline, although I do have a vague idea where the where I'm going at the end, but I don't you know, all through the middle of the book. I don't really know what's what's going to happen, and I sometimes have characters who come in, and I expect them just to be uh, a secondary character coming in to give some information or or make some link, and then they don't leave. Um, but the 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 classic for me case where this happened was a book called On the Line, where Bill Smith, who was the narrator of that one, called Lydia's cousin, who was also in Paper Sun, right. um, because he needed something. And the cousin, Linus Wong, showed up with his girlfriend, who, which I didn't know he had one of. Um, so Linus and Trella show up. And Bill says, after the, they finish their little scene, Bill says, OK, I'm going to go out there to this place they'd identified. And Linus and Trella said, we're coming with you. And Bill says, no, you're not. And Trella says, I have a car. You need a car. Let's go. And they never left the book. And they became very important, integral parts of that book. That happens all the time. Um, never quite as... as um, uh, clearly, as as in that case, but characters change; they take on different roles. 
they refuse to do what you had in mind for them. So you either have to not have that happen or you have to have give it to some other character. I am much in there as Sam is in his paintings. And these people are all alive and they're doing whatever it is they do. And I need to figure out what it is they're doing. So I never say, okay, what you're going to do is, what I do is when, if I get stuck, I say, okay, what would so-and-so do now? Or what would make sense for Bill and Lydia to be worried about now? I, I never tell them, okay, you're going to worry about this because they say, oh, I don't think so. They all do that. I, I, have, all I have a Lydia question, and I'm going to refer to American Dirt by Cummings. A lot of discussion about that oh, book. Boy. She looked, she lost her book tours, but the book sold very, very well. You're not Chinese. Your main character is Lydia Chin. Has any, and anybody ever challenged you about creating that, that seminal character for your series? I'll tell you what's interesting. Um, first of all, this series is 20 years old. So it was less of a sensitive topic 20 years ago. But besides that, crime readers are more at home with characters who are not identifiable with the writer than I think the readers of mainstream literature. Oh, and I've part, there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that a lot of crime literature is in the first person. Right. And so you can't assume that the writer and the character are the same. Um, I, I, I was a, a couple of times people have asked me, um, who are you to be writing a Chinese woman? And I understand the, the um, uh, emotions behind the question. My answer is always, I won't discuss whether I have the right to do it, because I think every writer has the right to do whatever he or she wants to do. I will discuss whether I've done it well. The idea that I don't have the right um, is, is not something I'll discuss. It is more, as I say, much more prevalent now as, as an idea than it was then. I have not heard in these last couple books uh, anything. But I, you know, there's another thing, Larry, which is that in the crime world, I am now, I used to be a young punk, now I'm an elder statesman. Um, so maybe people don't think it's worth it to challenge me. I don't know. But I do not hear that uh, about Lydia. What I do hear, um, funnily, is people who see my picture after they've read the book right. and say, my God, you're not Chinese. Um, and and my, my, my proudest moment as a uh, writer was when a young Asian man came up to me to get a book signed at, at some event and said, I just have to ask you one question. 
when did you meet my mother? <laughs> and I thought that was great. So, you know, I do a lot of research. I mean, I don't just I know you do. throw this stuff off. But um, in the end, it the question is how deeply I can inhabit Lydia. That, one of the last questions I'm, I'm going to ask before we go to break is I referenced going to my local library to pick up some of your old books. And I and I when I go to check it out, I don't say anything, but I know I try, almost want to say to them, I really know this writer. I've talked to her in the past, but they don't know me. They just know me that the guy walks in, checks books and returns books. If, if you go into your local library or you go into a bookstore, if you can find one these days, and you see your name on all these books, how do you react to that? Sometimes I think, who wrote those? Um, I, you know, I really, I really love it. I have to say, I, I really love it. I remember um, walking into bookstores and just feeling envy. Look at all those people who have books um, and, and wanting to be one of them. And now um, I, I just, I just love it. I, I look and I think, boy, I remember how I felt writing that one. And I remember how I felt writing that one. And I remember the research for that one and where I went. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a whole other life outside of me that I've created. And I, I really like that. Well, my guest has been S.J. Roseanne. The new book is called The Art of Violence. S.J., it's always a pleasure to have a chance to have a conversation with you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Always a joy, Larry. Anytime. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll touch base. And by the way, I follow you on Twitter. I love what you do. Oh, okay. I Anybody wants to follow me on Twitter? It's just S.J. Roseanne. All right. So. All right. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Art from Periscope. After the break, just a thought, some commentary with the editor of Preaching Black Lives Matter, Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, will joining us after the break. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. With just a thought, here is the editor of Black Lives Matter, Gail Fisher-Stewart. Hi, Larry. It is so good to be back with you. Uh, we've seen a lot. We have seen a lot since we last chatted, particularly like January 6th, the storming of the Capitol building. Uh, that's in my hometown. And uh, while I was watching what was happening, in fact, I was at, at church and I didn't even know what was happening. I knew there were groups in D.C., but then I received uh, an alert on my phone from the mayor's office saying that there was going to be a curfew at 6 p.m., so I decided maybe I need to turn on on the television, and that's where I was seeing uh, the, the Capitol building being stormed, and while it was horrific, it neither shocked nor surprised me. Because with all the rhetoric going on in the last four years and the rise of hate groups and the militia groups and watching 
our militias, you know, on state capitol steps with their arms around police officers taking selfies, uh, it was it was bound it was bound to happen. But what did shock me in all of this was that if that had been black and brown people, there would have been body bags piled up high. We would have heard from the police that, you know, uh, I, I feared for my life and I, I shot. But here you have thousands of people almost looking like Spider-Man crawling up the walls of the Capitol. And either a little was done or they were being assisted by those who have sworn to serve all of the people. But as I said, it, it did not shock or surprise me because even though law enforcement had information, they had intelligence, there is a different way of viewing whites and blacks in this country. Armed white people are not viewed as a threat. They are viewed as exercising their Second Amendment rights. But Black people with guns, number one, we are armed just because of the color of our skin. And then to dare to have weapons, that's just a double threat. I think of how law enforcement and American society view the Black Panthers, who were not dangerous. They started feeding programs for their communities, health programs for their communities, educational programs. But when they decided to exercise their Second Amendment rights, they were targeted. And ultimately, some of them were killed. And so it did not surprise me what happened. In fact, as I, I watched, and after a few hours, when they finally decided to call in reinforcements, when they finally decided to call in the National Guard, I said, well, I'm glad I am sitting in my house right outside of D.C. and not down on the Capitol grounds, not downtown, because the last time I saw that many military troops in this city, was after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., except that the soldiers, the National Guard, were not downtown. They were riding through our communities, riding through our streets. And so those of us of a certain age and a certain hue, we had been that way before, and we were just glad that they were downtown. Because here you had Martin Luther King killed by a white man. And yes, there was civil disorder because we were upset. But the soldiers were in our communities as opposed to dealing with the violence and the hatred that killed Martin Luther King Jr. And so now as I watch and listen, law enforcement uh, point fingers and try to make scapegoats of each other, who had information, who didn't have information, what should have been done, they knew. But they didn't see white people, armed white people, as a threat. They were just letting off steam because uh, their voices are not being heard. That is never allowed. As we think about the Black Lives Matter demonstrations during the summer, People without weapons, 
And yet you had the military, you, you, you had the police all looking like stormtroopers. And then when the former president decided to take a stroll across Lafayette Square to St. John's Episcopal Church, peaceful demonstrators who had time before the curfew set in were dispersed with rubber bullets and tear gas. None of that was in preparation for the tens of thousands of people who had amassed downtown on the mall, who listened to the former president said, who said, let's go, let's walk, let's march to the Capitol to stop the steal of the election. You know, you it was all a lie. This is all a lie. And people would rather believe a lie than the truth. But ultimately, it's going to come down to this, whether or not we have serious conversations about race and racism and systemic racism. I am buoyed by President Biden's calling out the evils of the society and, and people who uh, uh, have the vapors, who, who are shocked and, oh, they're calling everybody who's white white supremacists and racists. Well, my grandmother had a saying, a hit dog will holler, that the only reason you are crying out is because you've been called out as a racist and you are a racist. People who are not a racist are going, okay, well, yeah, they need to be taken care of. And so we really have to um, have serious conversations about whether or not we are going to live into this democracy. And although people have said, you know, we, we have been a democracy for over 200 years, one commentator said, no, mm -mm. it's only been since the passage of the Voting Rights Act that we've been a democracy, because in a true democracy, everybody has the right to vote. And not everyone in this country had a right to vote until the Voting Rights Act, which, as we have seen with the challenging of the election and the challenging of the Electoral College and the threats being made to the, the, the administrators of votes in, in, in their um, states, still trying to take away votes from people of color. And something is seriously wrong in this country. And until we admit that, until we are willing to, for example, call out recently elected GOP representatives who have said one way to get rid of Nancy Pelosi is to put a bullet in her head. Can you imagine a person of color making that statement and that being charged with threats in a menacing manner? And yet we have people who have been elected to represent their state in the Capitol, walking around free with those thoughts. It would seem to me that the other representatives, the other senators would be fearful of their own lives. That you have people who will make those statements, who are working with them, beside them, who want to carry guns on on the House floor when they know you're not supposed to do that. And so until we are able to call out the evil that is in this country, 
and have serious conversations, we will never, we will never be the democracy we claim to be. That was just a thought with the editor of Preaching Black Lives Matter, the Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart. I want to recommend one book. It was the book of 2020. It would be the book of 2021. That's Cast by Wilkerson. After the break, you are what your grandparents ate. Judith Finlinson joins the conversation. I'm Larry Davidson. Listen to the podcast, Artful Periscope. We'll be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Here's a challenge. You are what your grandparents ate. What you need to know about nutrition, experience, epigenetics, and the origins of chronic disease. My guest is the author, Judith Finlinson. Judith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Larry. All right, so here's the, here's the easiest question you're going to get. Who is this book for, Judith? Well, basically, it, it's for everyone um, because it goes through the life cycle um, from the time you were born and actually even before because, as you say, the title is You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, and it goes right up to old age. Uh, I have information on Alzheimer's and other diseases of aging, and it really links or shows common links among all kinds of diseases and what happened to you before you were born. So the, the um, implication is, I mean, that's the bad news, that some, to some degree your health is determined even before you were born. But the good news is that once you start making your own choices regarding lifestyle practices like diet and exercise, you can take control of the ball and run with it if you choose to do so. Um, and I should tell you, I guess, how some of that programming works, um, why we can say things like you are what your grandparents ate. And we have a lot of... Um, epidemiological evidence that substantiates that. Um, it's because both the sperm and the female egg carry with them biological memories of past experiences through what is known as epigenetic modifications. And what that says, or what we know about epigenetics, which is a field of science that was bubbling away in the 20th century and is really coming into the fore over the last 20 years, is that your genes are fixed, but how they express themselves is not. And that expression is influenced by environmental impacts like poor nutrition, stress, and toxic exposures. Um, a very let me, let me just throw a quick question at you. Uh, this is this is just a, a very simple maxim. I want to know if it's true or not. You are what you eat. 
Do you agree or disagree with that? Because we have favorite foods. We tend to go to them often. And sometimes we develop allergies based on sometimes we eat the same thing over and over again. Would you kind of expand on that, if you might? Yes. Well, you, you are very much what you eat. And uh, what we have is a whole lot of um, evidence now that if you eat a healthy diet, you can really improve your health and you can do that because we know that that improves uh, gene expression. And I was talking about epigenetics. Uh, we also know that if you eat a poor diet and process, that would be a diet heavy in processed foods, among other things, um, that you will have, for instance, um, more inflammation. And inflammation is a condition that is linked with virtually every chronic disease going. So, of course, you are what you eat. What you eat. Um, and, you know, uh, what my book is telling you, that you are also, to some extent, what your grandparents ate. Now, here's an interesting thing. I came across an article that says, if you are born today, you have a chance to live well into your hundreds and beyond. Are you aware of that, that article that says, I guess a lot of factors have to come into play, genetics, environment, everything else, but you've got a chance if you eat properly, exercise, and do a lot of things you write about in this book, that living into a hundred it's not going to be unique. It's going to be the rule. The rule. You have a chance to live, and even beyond the 100, 105, 110, 100, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of possibilities to extend life beyond what we know now. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I like to tell the story, and I tell it in my book, of Robert Marchand, who is a Frenchman who was still a, a competitive cyclist at 106. But the interesting thing about uh, Robert Marchand, Marchand is that he didn't start to compete as a cyclist until he was about 70 because he was busy earning a living prior to that. And then cycling was his hobby and passion and he took that up uh, and became a champion. That's a subject that I like to write about uh, or have written about and it's resilience that kind of can-do attitude really underlies the psychology of somebody who takes up cycling at, uh, at the age of 70 and, and competitively and is still doing it at 160, still winning championships. What we know is that resilience, which is what we're talking about here, can-do attitude, uh, it's very much has been linked uh, with diet. Um, they've studied the Mediterranean diet, which is a diet based primarily of plant-based foods like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and nuts, along with healthy fats like fish and olive oil. We know that it's anti-inflammatory and remember from studies, and remember I said inflammation is linked with virtually every chronic disease, we also know that it positively influence, influences gene expression, and it has been shown to build 
resilience, both psychological and physical. So those kinds of things uh, really feed into this knowledge that we are in control of our health. Can I, can I, can I challenge you with something too that's very topical right now? that there's a great debate going on, not in this country, but throughout the whole world, climate change. Climate change is real. So how does the environment and climate change affect us as individuals, even if we eat properly, but there are, there's a lot of things out there that have deleterious effects in the air, in the water, and things that come into our body through no fault of our own. So how does that factor into what you were trying to address. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and toxic exposures, things like air pollution and so on, which we don't have a lot of control over, uh, are have been shown to negatively affect gene expression and they have been linked with various diseases like asthma and so on, uh, depending on the exposure uh, to you know what you've been exposed to. But there are really several different inputs here in terms of, the, of ways you can manage your health. So first and foremost, in terms of keeping you healthy, is a healthy diet and adequate amounts of exercise. Uh, sedentary lifestyles are not good. We know that. We have all kinds of evidence on that. Um, things like uh, stress management is also very important. Um, so we know that um, mindfulness practices like mindfulness med meditation, yoga, so on, also very positively, uh, positively affect gene expression and improve health. So if you're kind of doing the right things in various fronts, like eating a good diet, getting enough exercise, you are going a long way toward balancing or offsetting the ones you can't control, like air pollution, those kinds of toxic exposures. So the other question would be, by the way, my guest is the author of You Are What Your Grandparents Ate, What You Need to Know About Nutrition Experience Epigenetics and the origins of chronic disease. You can't, in a sense, you can't control um, DNA and you can't control over a course of multiple generations what they, what they ate. So can you reverse that? That is the primary question. If you have a bad diet and you're prone through your DNA to have certain markers for certain disease, diseases, can it be reversed later in life, even though you've had poor choices early on? You can certainly go a long way toward offsetting it. And I want to, um, I just want to point out that uh, with DNA, you know, before they mapped the, finished mapping the human genome, which they did uh, around the year 2000, geneticists really thought that that would have the answer to disease development. Um, a recent study, one that came out about a year ago, did all of the, reviewed all of the um, gene studies, um, and they concluded that really your genes 
overall, we're responsible for about 5% of diseases. What we know uh, about these patterns, um, we know from studying identical twins, because they have the same identical genomes, but they very, very rarely die of the same disease. Um, uh, a Finnish study of identical twins, for instance, and this goes to the issue of, of um, how much you can control, uh, followed, um, said that the, the one twin was active, the other were sedentary, but there, there were more than one pair. But uh, they found that after three years, the sedentary twin was developed, had various markers of in, in, ill health, including insulin resistance, and also less gray matter in their brains. When they study older people, they have shown that things like introducing exercise right. has the most benefit to older people. The, it, it, it opens up more positive pathways of gene expression than, than, counter, than people who start exercising when they're younger. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. We're talking with the author of You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. Judith, what are superfoods? Now, a lot of people, you, you go to your local nutrition health food store and there's all this stuff out there and you read stuff online and certain magazines and this, this, this superfood is going to be good for you. You're going to live to be 100 plus, no pun intended. In terms of your orbit and what you know and your expertise, what are superfoods? Well, you're, you're kind of talking to the wrong person in a way because I'm not a great believer in superfoods. My position is that every food is a superfood, each in its own way. Uh, really what the science shows is that the superfood benefits come from eating a healthy diet, uh, a, varied, a varied diet of many whole foods because you're getting a full range of nutrients that you need to stay healthy. Um, there are things like functional foods. Um, fermented foods are on everybody's radar now, and that's because they provide uh, what are called probiotic or beneficial bacteria. Right that really help to, um, they help with a lot of things. Uh, they they pre-digest um, uh, substances in food so that if you were, say, intolerant to lactose, you can, by eating kefir or yogurt, eat dairy foods uh, because the bacteria have pre-digested the sugars that are likely to be to bother you. Um, sourdough, <clears throat> uh, for instance, um, uh, gobbles up gluten, uh, which, which some people have problem with. So some people who are gluten sensitive can then eat great whole grain bread, which is very nutritious, um, if it's sourdough, because the bacteria have gobbled up some of those substances. Uh, so those kinds of like functional foods like fermented foods can um, 
target certain areas and help to improve your health. But superfoods, um, uh, like things like acacia berries were, were very um, popular a couple of years ago. I mean, sure, they're great. You know, add them to your diet now and again, but don't think, you, you don't want to just eat one food because even if it's, it's full of, uh, of um, very beneficial substances, you're not getting the variety that you need and will get uh, from a diet of whole foods. All right, there's nothing, I, you're, not, I don't, you're not an expert in genetics, I don't think, but if you are, I'm curious about what I'm gonna ask you. I am lactose intolerant. That's traced back to the Ashkenazi Jews. Now, the, the question I have and the curiosity I have, I didn't learn about until later on, when this is what I was experiencing is, in terms of genetics, why do certain groups have things that are gonna bother what they eat and have a negative effect on taking certain foods? And some people don't even know that. But my guess is there are other groups that have foods that are not good for them. So based on genetics, what can we learn in terms of learning what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat, and if they are causing problems, like having problems with glute, uh, gluten or I have to drink lactate-free milk, is that something you can talk about? Oh, well, I'm not, you're right, I'm not a geneticist, uh, but yes, you, many people are lactose intolerant. Uh, many people, for instance, are, um, I'm, I have problems with gluten. My, my heritage is, is Irish. And uh, I couldn't believe when I went to Ireland and, and went to the supermarket, they're the most wonderful aisles and aisles of gluten-free products because so many people with Celtic heritage uh, have problems with gluten. And that is one of the great things about some of the testing that we can do. I, I just, I found out I, I didn't find out I was gluten intolerant until about 10 years ago and almost by accident. But I'd always had problems with my stomach. And, um, you know, people would just say, oh, that's just you. It's a nervous stomach. Now I think it was, you know, that I was eating gluten and having, having all of these problems. But that's one of the great things about, about genetic uh, testing that allows you to do these genome-wide uh, assessments that you can find out things like that. I'm going to pose you one last question. I think this, this is fascinating. I believe you wrote an article for the Washington Post yes. about eating while pregnant, and not just about women, but how important it is for the man to eat properly. You want to expound on that, please? Yes, absolutely. Um, the science that uh, you are what your grandparents ate is based on is known as the developmental origins of health and disease. And that science, I'm, some are really being overly simplistic here, but really looked at the effect of things like poor nutrition on pregnant women and on their offspring. And we have now thousands of studies on that. And really what it shows is that if a woman is malnourished when she is pregnant, 
uh, her offspring is more likely to suffer from a number of chronic diseases, most of them met metabolic in, in origin, things like uh, type 2 diabetes, uh, obesity, heart disease, and so on. Um, what we have now started to look at is that, in fact, the male sperm also carries uh, some epigenetic changes that affect um, how a fetus develops. Uh, for instance, if fathers drink too much prior to conception, uh, the studies show that it increases the risk of miscarriage. Um, we know that older fathers are more likely to father children uh, over the, if they're over the age of 45, their children are more likely um, to um, suffer from aut autism. And this is uh, when we talk about grandparents and what your grandparents eat, one of the early studies, uh, epidemiological studies, that was going on about the same time that Dr. David Barker, who is the father of the developmental origins of health and disease science, was doing some of his original research, was a Swedish study. An epidemiologist named Lars Bergen had grown up in this little town in northern Sweden where his family had lived for generations. And uh, I don't quite know why, but he decided he would look at um, the impact of feast or famine because it was an agricultural community and some years they had great crops and other years they didn't uh, on various generations. And he found that when boys ate too much around the time of puberty, their grandchildren, their grandsons died significantly earlier. Um, he then teamed up with uh, a British geneticist named Marcus Pembry, and their study showed that when boys, young boys, started to smoke around the age of nine their children were far more likely to have metabolic disease like ob obesity. Um, what that showed was that around nine years old, or that's the, around the time of puberty, that's when boys' sperm cells are forming. And to come back to the environment, environmental impacts like a toxic exposure, like smoking, or, you know, a nutritional impact like eating too much uh, leaves epigenetic marks on the sperm cells and those are carried like biological memories that influence uh, fetus when it is developing. Uh, Judith, I want to thank you very much. We're just about out of time. The book is called You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. What you need to know about nutrition, experience, epigenetics, and the origins of chronic disease. Judith, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. We're going to close out with a song from singer-songwriter Pete Mancini. Bye-bye.
camps and shock troop cops. Guessing crap photo ops. Throwing citizens in unmarked vans. The president with bloodstained hands. For the bounties on our soldiers' heads. 200,000 people dead. You never take my voice from me. You can't beat me, then tell me I'm free. Send your goons to our streets. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tired to her kitchen chair. She broke-